My favorite. It's Judd's Hockey Show. And welcome into a very special edition of Judd's Hockey Show, where ordinarily we talk about the wild, the good, the bad. There's always plenty of stuff. But this is a special edition because we're going to be joined by an old friend of mine from going way back when, Kevin Allen Spock, who I knew during our time together at the U during my very brief matriculation that I've talked about before. Um, <laughs> and, and then and then he, he went to uh, the Pioneer Press, the St. Cloud Paper, and he has now nope. written a book about a subject near and dear to both of, of our hearts, and there's a tie-in here, but I'm going to show you. It's Mirage of Destiny, out February 20th, right? Yep, yep. Actually, okay. it's supposedly on some, some shelves already. Great. I saw they had it down at the Mall of America, Barnes & Noble, so yes. Awesome. It's out. Now, th- this is a story of the 1990-91 North Stars. If you are a youngster, and perhaps there are several of you who don't know about this, this is the North Star team that that made an improbable, miraculous, and I think now in the current National Hockey League probably impossible run right. to the Stanley Cup Finals after being one of the worst teams. In fact, I think they were the worst team to make the playoffs that season. And the tie-in between Kevin and I, as far as this goes, is I was an intern, a very bad one, for the North Stars the season before, and Kevin was an intern during the season uh, that he's written this comprehensive book about again, Mirage of Destiny. All right, let's just start, man, because I mean, we're <laughs> we're going to be talking about the old days here, the North Stars, Met Center. What influenced you all of these years after to decide to write a book about perhaps the most, as Patrick Royce has said, perhaps the most improbable sports run of any team in this state ever? Right, and I guess before we get started here, Judd, thank you for having me on. We're old college buddies, back to the days of uh, what was it, WMMR and yep. KUOM or whatever. Had some drinks at the Big Ten when I don't think we were exactly. supposed to. It's when, gone now, so we can talk about those. Days. When I was, uh, you know, talking about college basketball and I didn't know what I was talking about or whatever, but uh, yes, <laughs> some some great days. And, and yes, I ultimately sort of succeeded you as as a uh, you know PR intern with the North Stars, and you know. I, I mean, that was going to be my senior year. I did wind up having to come back for an extra couple of quarters before I graduated. But, you know, I was walking through the basement of Murphy Hall one day and I saw the posting for this this internship. And I'm like, I can't pass that up. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do, probably pretty much similar to what you knew that you wanted to do. You wanted to go into broadcasting. I wanted to be a sports writer. But, man, I couldn't pass up the idea that I could see what it, what is it like to be on the inside of a real major league sports team. And, you know, I've talked to a few people here recently now that the book is out. And it's kind of like you almost have to put an asterisk by that because, you know, the Timberwolves were in their second year, the, the season I was there, the first year when you were there. Yeah. Uh, the Vikings are always going to own Minnesota. The Twins were only a couple of years off a World Series. And then we're going to win it again in, in the fall of 91. The North Stars were a way distant fourth and probably even behind Gopher Athletics, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the attendance was was terrible. I, I think you may have touched on that. The attendance was terrible that year. So, uh, you know, it was really, it, you know, it was an experience that I went through at that time. And, and you know, Norm Green became the owner that year. And to me, he's really kind of like a modern-day Montgomery Burns, a little bit, or a hockey <laughs> Montgomery Burns. Mm-hmm. And... Between that experience, you know, him bringing his dogs to the office and, you know, people walking on eggshells wondering whether they were going to get fired for the littlest thing. And then the team coming back and making this miraculous run 
when I left that spring, I was like, man, somebody someday should write a book about this and tell about it. And then it became even more so less than two years after they lost in the finals, the team is gone. He took them to Dallas. So then I'm like, man, this really deserves to be told. I didn't have the opportunity until the pandemic. And so the pandemic rolled around. I happened to be laid off right in front of that. And so I, at some point I was like, Hey, what am I going to show for my pandemic time? I got to have something here to do. So I picked up this project. Wow. Well, First of all, it's funny because a year before you saw that uh, th- that small like card in Murphy Hall, I saw the same exact card, and that's exactly. how I found out. Right. I'm walking through, going to class, bored by the whole school experience, unfortunately, yeah. and I saw the same thing, and I'm like, I gotta call this. And right. and Joe Janis was the PR director then. Okay. Now Joe Joe gave way to Tim Bryant, who couldn't get along with the Wolves folks. He was supposed to be the first PR guy. And then I think by the time you got that card, it was Joni. Yep. Um, but that is, but I, I remember being in Met Center. In, in fact, I was in charge of clips. Oh, yeah, clips, sure. Yep. Yep. Which, which were not on a computer, ladies and gentlemen. You literally were there clipping newspapers. And I was in charge of clips when the original story, and, and I believe it's referenced in your book, broke via USA Today. Yes, that that yep. the guns and I still to this day don't know how USA Today got the story, but that the guns were looking for major improvements right. to the building or they were threatening to move this team. So I was I remember looking at that. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I'm in this building and this team's going to agree. So you talk <laughs> about some some weird stuff, but let's talk about uh, your time with Norm there because I I miss Norm entirely. Thank God. Yeah. But so you were you there? when it looked like it was going to be Howard Baldwin and Bellsburg and then a transition to Norm or like, how, how did your experiences go? Cause I just, I, I was on the, um, on the agate desk at the Star Tribune at the time. Yeah. And I remember when Norm was firing people left right. and right, Joni got fired, brought back, yep. but yep. they let a ton of folks go. So what, what was your experience there being young green and then seeing Norm Green gas the entire building, basically. Well, and what was your experience? When you were an intern, were you there for the entire season or were you there for a portion of it? Because I think the season that I was there, they did have somebody who served as an intern probably like late in the summer through September, October. And it was like November when I actually got hired. So you know who that was for me? Who? The person who was there when I when I got there. Dave St. Peter. Oh, that's right. Yes. Absolutely. Dave St. Peter was there. And so I came in in like October. And and that's, you know, uh, you talk about a, another real minor footnote to this whole thing. I mean, he winds up getting married to Joni Preston. Yeah, and becoming president well, of the Twins. at one point, <laughs> you know. Crazy. So, but, yeah, so I guess to, to try to answer your question, I mean, I, you know, I came on. It was November before I rolled around, and Dan Stuckel was the other interview, uh, the other intern that they brought on at the same time as me. And, you know, it was it – was, you really kind of had to check your mind at the door because right at that point, Kathy Ganey had gotten brain cancer. So, you know, she was undergoing her surgery and, and you know, Bob was having to step away from the team for a week or two, and and you didn't know what was going to go on with that. They were late in the stages of star stakes. I know that that one of the first releases that Dan got to write was when one of the star stakes people hit. (laughs) 
um, you know, and and the electric stars, you know, they were Norm had seen that at a Timberwolves game, you know. So why can't the hockey team have its own dance troupe or whatever? And that's fine, except you know they're not going to do it on skates. Yep, <laughs> and. You know, there was, I mean, they would, they would put out a, a piece of AstroTurf between periods and the guys would get out there on this AstroTurf and try to do their dance routine or whatever. But um, so there was a lot of things going on there that were just sort of surreal and none of it really affected the attendance. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I did the math in the book. I mean, the, the amount of money, he spent like over a quarter of a million dollars on the star, on the elect, uh, star stakes. And star stakes was, was a giveaway each game, right? Right. It, was a, it was a lottery because if okay. you remember judd they had like the the spotlight would go flying all over the arena you know and then it would settle on a seat and they had a couple other college kids they must have been the marketing interns or something because they had to wear a north stars jersey and they wore a, a goalie mask you know that looked like jason from friday the 13th and so they'd run around with an envelope and they're going to hand it to whoever the spotlight would settle on well, the only problem was it's probably at least half the time it settled on an empty seat. <laughs> so if, if you look at the money that he spent, I mean, like I said, it was over a quarter of a million dollars. And I think, you know, the attendance did go up a little bit from the time that they started that, which was in maybe November, early November or something like that. But that was about at the time at which the team started to play maybe a little bit better. Plus, you know, hockey attendance typically improves a little bit as you get deeper into the winter. So, you know, I, I think, you know, he, he probably spent like an, like $8 for every extra fan that he did get to come into the building, which is probably not a great return on your money. So, no, no. But. And in fact, I, I was there. I remember being in the press box opening night. I want to say it was against Brett Hull and the Blues. Yep. yep. And there was like 5,000 there. Right. I mean, nobody. That That's what's so hard if you're – a wild fan who doesn't remember the North stars. That's what's right. so hard to like get your head around. Right. Uh, that place was empty and, and yes, it gradually built up, but there, there was, there must've been no season ticket base whatsoever. No. I think they might've had between two and 3000 season tickets, maybe something like that. And I guess the, you know, the other thing to put that in perspective, that's important too, is there wasn't a team in the league that wasn't drawing twice as many or more as I, so, I mean, it's not that the North stars weren't getting any people to show up. I mean, it, it was not even close. I mean, every other team that would come in, they're like, what's going on. And speaking of the star stakes lottery, I mean, opponents would come in and you'd have opposing players and assistant coaches and they're buying tickets just so that they can get into the lottery. So, you know, that tells you kind of how crazy it was at one point. Wow. So when, when you, started the book uh because you, you talked to a ton of folks from the team sure front office etc who cooperated who surprised you like madonna played a big role but mike seems like a really decent guy so i, I guess i'm right. not surprised but like as far as going through uh phone calls or sending out notes who co- who cooperated who you probably thought might be a long shot well, I wanted to start with Mike because I figured he's the only Hall of Famer who was a player on that team. And if I could get him to fall in line, you know, a lot of other people would probably follow. Unfortunately, that happened. The other key was Bob Ganey. Uh, he was tremendous, spent hours on the phone with me. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I just got a, a nice email from him the other day. He's had a chance to, to you know, get the book in his hands and read it. And he's very complimentary. And, and, and that was really nice to hear. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm kind of proud because, you know, I set out and it was maybe a monster task, really, to begin with. But yeah. what I wanted to do, this was my premise. I wanted to, to at least con- try to contact everybody, every player who played in a regular season or playoff game all of the coaches, all of the, you know, the, the trainers, the equipment people, that sort of thing. Cause I mean, these were people that I was, as you know, I mean, we were interacting, you know, on a somewhat regular basis as, as PR intern. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to also add in the front office people who worked in PR, which during my tenure, I guess, theoretically Lou Nanny would have been in, at the top of the PR department. Cause that was when he got moved from president down to, whatever his title was that season. And then Elaine Waddell was sort of like the director of marketing. And then you had mentioned Joni had gotten fired uh, during the the wave over the summer. And after about three days, they realized, wait a minute, we probably need her. So they brought her back. And so she was in charge of communications. And then she didn't have anybody else. I mean, it was me and Dan Stuckel. I mean, we were the two interns. That's literally the only help that she had. And now when you look at it, I mean, the Wild actually have a thin crew. I think they've only got three or four guys who really work on, you know, what you would call PR for the, the hockey department. But, uh, you know, in comparison to, you know, the Twins or the Vikings or, you know, other major uh, sports, I mean, it's a bare bones operation. And that was probably somewhat by design, too, because like you said, I mean, Norm, Norm came in and just slashed and, and burned and, and got rid oh, of yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, because because despite their faults, the guns did spend. Like sure. P- PR sure. when I when I was there uh, was Joe Janna's, and, and then he, I think he transferred out to a different department. Tim Bryant took over from the Wolves. Joni was the assistant. Right. You know, it was like two of us. So, but I mean, there there were two full full time employees. Right. Um, and then Norm came in and just fired everyone. And in, in fact, I I think this also is in the book. There were um, when I was there. There was PR offices and stuff in yeah. the Alpha Building, which was literally right. across the street. I yep. think Norm gave up those leases, correct, and moved yep. everything, consolidated so, everything back. So when back. you were coming to work every day, then were you going to the Alpha Building? At first, okay. at first, the first few months we were in the Alpha Building when Joe Janice was there. Okay, when Tim Bryant took over for Joe. Tim, because Joe Joe was in Alpha, and then I I was at like an outside you know secretarial desk. Yeah. And then when Tim Bryant came in, Tim rightfully so said the PR guy should be in the hockey building. Probably. Like yes. I should know what's going on. <laughs> um, and so they granted him that wish, and I think they built an office across the the way. But as as you recall, those North Star offices weren't very big. Oh no, huh. like they were small. In fact, and we once had. You were underground. There was we, no windows, you know. There was one day that, that so Joni had a small office. Tim had the bigger office. And yep. then the interns were just sort of like outside. Okay. And there was one day a guy in like a snowmobile suit comes booking through, like running full speed. And it's like, what the hell? And he ran right past us. Security comes. It was, an, it was a guy with a gun who had just robbed the daily, like, Cash pickup from that center. <laughs> Did you get Steve Ruane after him? I was, I was like, I could have been shot. 
<laughs> I'm glad I didn't get in his way. Oh man. Well, yes, like you say. I mean, they weren't. Uh, they were Spartan offices, and you know, Dan and I actually shared a, sort of a cubicle that's probably not bigger than than my bedroom office here. So, I mean, you know, we were pretty much back to back, and uh, definitely no frills. But uh, I, I guess going back to your question about who participated, I felt very fortunate because off of the guys who appeared in the playoffs, there were only three that did not participate in the book. I got the entire coaching staff. Uh, most of the equipment guys um, couldn't raise Dave Supernaut. Um, you know, there's a few people that kind of slipped through the cracks that way. And I, try as I might, I wanted to get Bobby Clark, and I didn't. I couldn't get through to him. Uh, but for the for the players, it was only uh, Neil Broaden. Um, and you know, I talked to Neil quite often in the past. I mean, you know, he he was an ambassador for the Wild a little bit when they first came to be and. Right. So there were times when he would come through St. Cloud or I would see him at a game somewhere. And, and this was always kind of a subject that I would engage him on when I got the chance. So it wasn't as though I hadn't talked to him about it before. And I know Neil's had, you know, maybe some issues. I know, you know, he's, he's gotten divorced and, you know, some things going on with his you know personal life. So who's to say, you know, how, how, how much or, or whether he wanted to participate. But so it would have been nice to have him involved. Kurt Giles, ironically, I mean, I suppose I could have went and staked out an Edina hockey game and tried to, you know, jump him when he came out of the arena or something like that. But I tried. I emailed. I called and and couldn't get a response. He was but scratched. Thing, he was scratched I'm, a lot, right? The the thing that I'm thinking there is, is he was scratched for the entire finals. Yeah, that was his last year with the North Stars. He was the captain. Yeah, and got scratched for the finals, and and I think he. You know, between that and the fact that they didn't win, I don't think it's a real pleasant memory for him. And so that, you know, might have been, you know, I'm not making excuses, but that might sure. be why. And then the, the guy, if, if there's there's two people that I didn't talk to that I regret, that I, I wish I could talk to, and if I ever get the chance, maybe we'll have a sequel or something like that. One is obviously Norm, but, you know, Norm, I don't think is ever going to want to talk about this. I don't know that he's ever going to trust anybody to talk about this. I, you know, I spoke with people in the book. I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure Ralph Strangis is still in touch with Norm. Uh, I know Dan Stuckel sees him occasionally. So, you know, I, I've told these guys, you know, hey, I, I'm fine. Just try, just tell Norm that this happened. And if he would ever want to talk about it, heck, that would probably be worth another book, honestly. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't get him, but didn't expect. And then the other one is John Casey. Um, and I don't know what your relationship with John Casey was, but, you know, he's from Grand Rapids. He's a northern guy. And when he, in my tenure, when I was there, he really didn't enjoy dealing with the media. No, I don't think very I had much. the same exact experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you'd, you'd go in there and even after games that he would win, you know, the media would crowd around him and he'd be talking into his chest like this. And you couldn't hardly see his face or whatever. And he also had some bad experiences, one of which may have happened with Patrick Royce. But I know there's a few columnists that he felt really burned him while he was here. So, um, and, you know, maybe the same thing there. I mean, I think, you know, as the goalie, um, you know, certainly that team would not have done what it did without John Casey. I mean, if you take one guy out, if you take him out, there's no way that that happens. Um, So he should really feel, you know, positive about what happened. But again, probably not something that, that he wants to remember. And, and, uh, and actually I'll, I'll throw a little sort of special scoop in here, Judd, I don't know if you've read the book really cover to cover, but the, the little scoop that I don't believe has re- been reported anywhere 
publicly. Um, in the finals, the North Stars were ahead two games to one going into game four at home. And that's the reason why I started the book with the lead up to game four. Right. And if the North Stars would have won that night, they would have been able to clinch the cup in Pittsburgh for game five. So before game four, you had a lot of wives and girlfriends that are saying, hey, we w- I want to be there when this is going to happen. Okay. Okay. Now that team, wives and girlfriends, had not traveled with them at all since they went to Russia in training camp. And I know that there was some guy, you know, some guys were probably ambivalent about it or whatever, but I know that there was also some players and the coaches, for sure Bob Ganey, is like, you know, you don't screw with this. You know, right. I mean, we whatever is working right now is working. You don't mess with it. Okay. Well, and I've got like eight guys in the book. It's not just me saying this. These are other players. Something happened the day of game four between John and Brenda Casey. There was an argument, something. John comes to the, the morning skate the day of game four. They had three children who were all like under the age of seven. Mm-hmm. They are all with him coming to the game day skate the day of game four because I don't know if Brenda got mad and left or what the circumstance was. Supposedly he told Jim Johnson, he didn't have any other place to leave the kids. And that's why he brought them there. And, you know, Jim was like, you know, Hey, you bring the kids on off days or whatever, or after a game, but that's a no, no, not, you know, leading up on the, on the day of a game, you don't bring your kids into the finals game. Yeah, this is oh game for the Stanley Cup a, Finals. Whoa. Okay. Yep. And then now you got to put that in context with what happened. Because if you recall, game four, they gave up three goals in the first three minutes. And from that moment on, they were really on their heels the rest of the series. And, you know, I don't want to paint that as too big of a, you know, smoking gun or something like that. Because, like I said, they would never have been there without John Casey. And, you know, there's guys who are also quoted in the book. Neil Wilkinson said, that's a bunch of BS. John Casey was professional enough that that wasn't – whatever happened wasn't going to affect him in the way that he played. So you, you kind of got guys on both sides of that. But I think there's no doubt something happened. And – you know, I guess that's that's part of the legend. I will say this. Jim Johnson at the time is a veteran. Wilkie was a kid. Right. So I, sure. I think I would, as far as your interpretation, I think I trust Jim Johnson more. than And, and, and I mean, you know, Neil, Neil had talent. Don't get me wrong. But right. he was young at the time. Right. Yes. He was really green. Absolutely. So that is interesting. So. As you there was many more guys to your point, and that's yep. a very good point. There were many more guys on the Jim Johnson side. I mean, guys like Shane Sherla, uh, you know, uh, guys who had been around a little bit, and and you know, they even to this day, I mean, they, they don't want to hang anything on John, but it's obvious to them something changed, something either yeah. impacted his focus at that point or. You know, the other thing, I mean, John wasn't a very big guy. I mean, he was like 5'8", 155 or something yep. like that. And at that point, you know, he had started every game and played 
a lot of minutes. And plus, like I said, they went to they went to Russia for training camp. So by the time you get done with that and the exhibition season and the regular season, and then you go all the way to the Stanley Cup finals. I mean, the, the team had played like 110 games. That's so, right. you know, That's who's crazy. to say how much how ground down he was. So as you went through the process and started to talk to sources and people about this and did research, did did what you found for the book, did, did it sort of solidify as you recalled it? Or, or was there a lot of stuff in retrospect that you didn't recall or at least was interpreted differently through a 2020 lens, for instance, than it was 1991? Well, and here's where I got to give a nod to not only Rachel Blount, who you worked with at the Star Tribune for many years, but Gary Olson, who I worked with for many years at the Pioneer Press. You know, I have tremendous respect for the beat writers. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to grow up and be a beat writer. And, you know, they did, between the two of them, I thought did a tremendous job of, of you know, really reporting all the little nuances. You know, I mean, there used to be notes at the end of the stories back then. I think the Star Tribune used to run them in agate type, you know. We did. Sometimes those were the, the most interesting <laughs> things in the whole story or whatever. But, you know, yep. so you go back and, I, you know, I, I went through it. And, and you know, even even from back then, some of them are probably your clips, clips that you clipped out. When 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 I left the the North Stars that season, I, I made a whole bunch of copies. I had like three big three ring binders all full of clips from that time, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know so I guess you know and looking at it you know from a, a distant view, I mean I I don't know. I mean I, I think it, it puts it in perspective a little bit, but I mean I I personally and I think you and I think most people who followed the North Stars that at that point in time. I mean, that was crazy. It was, and and the numbers kind of bear it out. Like you said at the beginning of the show, the NHL is different these days. Um, you know, with the, the shootout points and, and all that kind of stuff, it's almost impossible to compare. But like, you know, the NFL, it's going to be rare. You might maybe get a seven and nine or, well, in, in these days, maybe an eight and nine team since they play 17 games that might make the playoffs. They would have to then go on and play for the Super Bowl to have, any sort of equivalent. Right. And I don't even know if that's fair because you only play a, a handful of, of playoff games. I mean, in hockey, you got best of seven series and the NBA, it's only happened like three times. I think that a team with a losing regular season record has played in the finals. Now hockey, I mean, it happened quite often because this particular season that we're talking about, I mean, 16 of the, 21 teams made the playoffs. So, I mean, it was, all, it was, it was harder not to make the playoffs yes. than it was to actually make it. But, you know, nonetheless, it, 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 you know, that, that to me is, is, it's just one little thing here that makes this a story that is unique that I hope, you know, one of my purposes for writing this is I just, you know, someday I think somebody, you know, if they want to look back and find out, geez, what the heck happened with these North stars? How did that, you know, that sounds crazy. Believe me, when you dive into this book, you're going to find a lot more crazy than you ever thought. And at least now it's there for, you know, posterity. Well, and just the playoff run itself, like forget the finals, because that was the Chicago team that was the best team in the league, right? right. Yep. They went through Chicago, St. Louis, and Edmonton. And like that, Louis, that in itself is a gauntlet. St. Louis was only one point behind Chicago. So you had two the two best teams in the league, basically. And then, you know, I'm still to this day amazed – 
going into the playoffs that year against Edmonton, they hadn't won at Northland's Coliseum in 10 years. It was wow. 1980 was the last time that they won a game in Edmonton. So, you know, and I, it, this is sort of the other thing that, you know, may come through and, you know, you know me, Judd, so you probably kind of knew this even at the time, but it's like, you know, I mean, I knew, but <laughs> I, I might have started in November, but I think I knew by January that, hey, my future in PR. Oh, God, yeah, I was the same exact way. I was I'm terrible gonna, at PR. I'm going to stick this out as best as I can, but I want to have a job where I tell you the truth. Yeah. <laughs> well, and request what... things. Don't get requested. You know, can I get game notes and stuff? I wanted to be the one requesting game notes, damn it. <laughs> right, exactly. But, you know, so there was a lot of even the regular season left and I knew this was not going to be my future, but I just, I, I wanted to, you know, put in my time and ended on a good note, blah, 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 get on, you know, get back to the pioneer press and get on with the rest of my life. So I'm figuring, okay, they're going to play Chicago. This is done. You know, I'll be back to work before you know it. <laughs> they beat the Blackhawks and I'm like, okay, well, you know, Fool me once, fine, but yeah, St. Louis will take care of business. I mean, Brett Hull scored 86 goals, you know, so this has got to be where it comes to an end. And they beat St. Louis, and it, by that time, as you remember, this, it was like the state was on a drug. I mean, oh, yeah. the people who were coming to the Met Center and the people who were following that team, yep. A, it, got, it, it went everywhere. It went crazy. It went viral. And it was it literally, it was like a drug that people needed. You know, they needed their fix. And tailgating came back. Right, right, exactly. That's the thing, too. You know, the, the Dome at that point was, what, nine years old? The Mall yep. of America, I think, was still going up at that point. I don't yep. think it was done yet. Nope. But but that brought that brought tailgating back for a glorious right. spring, right. Which, which was huge. Because there was, at that point in time, Vikings twin, there was no, like, special lots. So right. this was the place to go basically get drunk before the game yep. and then yep. go in. And that, that's the thing that a lot of people don't recognize or realize either is, you know, it was kind of a younger crowd, honestly. I mean, you know, the, you had your corporate ticket holders or whatever, but it wasn't nearly like what it was with the ticket rolls or what it, you know, ultimately got to be or what it is today where you have so many uh, ticket holders that are like that. The, the crowd out at Met Center, and I'm sure you remember, I mean, you know, I would say it, it trended from about maybe 16 to maybe 35, something like that. I and mean, tickets were expensive, but they weren't that expensive. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, you, you know, you could, I, I'm trying to remember what they were off the top of my head, but even during the regular season, I think the top regular, because Norm was going to have a $50 ticket that year and he got such blowback with it that they, that they said, okay, we're not going to do that. So I think the most expensive ticket, if I remember correctly, it was like 28 bucks. Mm-hmm. you know contrast mm-hmm. that you know i mean god love the wild but i mean look at what it's going to cost you to sit in the lower bowl over at the x oh god yeah and and families went i'm not trying to say that they didn't but you know the x is families kids right. have jerseys wild jerseys the north stars was a different thing it was far more of a hard drinking bloomington yeah. suburban you know crowd um so what is your favorite like of all the things that you saw and the weird things What's your favorite norm moment? Do do you have like a norm? I like personally from afar, I always loved the the fact, and I've talked to Patrick about this, that they decided to build, they decided to knock out the press room lunchroom to make that a auxiliary press box because they didn't want to eat up seats. 
he fired Eric Cruz because Eric Cruz called the city of Bloomington and wanted to make sure that it was legal for them to do it. He wanted to get a, a you know, a permit. A permit. <laughs> and Norm didn't want to wait. So he fired him, said, we're going to just do it anyway. Oh my God. I you know? Know so, I mean, that's an example. I mean, there's a lot of them. I mean, you know, here's a guy who is so wealthy. I mean, he's got his own jet, you know, he's got his own pilot, you know, goes around with him. You know, he's got a, he, he drives a Rolls and he doesn't drive. He's got a chauffeur that drives him. You know, I mean, I mean, how does this fit into Bloomington, Minnesota in 1990? I mean, this just doesn't really compute to me. I suppose maybe you had, I, I don't even know. I mean, what, what executives in the twin cities that would you have had that would have been playing in that sort of pool? You know, I mean, it was just different. And, and then he had his two dogs, you know, Rupert and Charles, and he'd bring oh, his yeah. dogs. And I remember, I think it was, I think it was Charles. I, I don't remember which one, but I, I know I was working one day and the dog came around the corner and he started barking at me like crazy. And it's like, you know, go away. <laughs> You're like, just get out of here. Well, and I, you know, I felt bad because I think the guy who was his pilot, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think his pilot also kind of doubled as his chauffeur. And there was times where we would see this guy who obviously he's got a pilot's license. I mean, you know, he's got a, a high level job or he's educated man, but part of his job apparently was to take the dogs out for a walk so they could do their business. So, I mean, Oh yeah. Think, think of the, the come down that is, you know, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a jet pilot and yet I got to take this guy's dogs for a walk so they can take a crap. Not enough money in the world that you can be paid for that one. When did the, when did the, um, cause I subscribe, but I forget the details. When did the team go on pay-per-view for the playoffs? It was just in, it was just in, for the playoffs. It didn't start, it started okay. against Chicago. So they started right away. Cause they've been on like channel nine or something, right? Right. They were on, well, and actually the. An MSC? An MSC. Cause during the season, you know, most of the road games were on channel nine they would have a handful of games that were on MSC and yeah. I, you you've written a ton about, you know, sports media, Judd. So I don't have to remind you of what that was like where MSC is trying to get a foothold in Minnesota. So in, in my year there, um, Jack Ferreira, who, who went to the Sharks was GM Dean Lombardi, who also went to the Sharks was assistant. Yep. Dean Lombardi, when the North stars were on MSC for road games, Dean had to stay at the Met to watch the games because in his apartment, they didn't yet get it. <laughs> so he's like bitching complaints. Like, I got to stay here tonight to watch the game because my effing apartment doesn't get MSC. Well, he was by no means alone. No, he, I know. It was rare for people to get Midwest Sports Channel at, at that point in time. Yes. And, and so, you know, the, the playoffs roll around. And, and of course, Norm, you know, and, and – you know, I think Pat Forcia played a little bit of a role in that. I mean, you know, this is a revenue stream that they could look at. The thing of it is, I don't think they ever thought they never thought they were going to go all the way to the finals. But once you start down that path, you can't then really say you're not going to do it, especially when you see the dollars start to come in. Because as the whole thing ramped up, you know, again by the end of the St. Louis series, by the Edmonton series, I mean they're getting thirty, forty thousand subscriptions at ten bucks a pop you know, or 12 bucks a pop that are rolling in on this thing. So, you know, and Patrick called him out on in the, in the finals. I know he was the first person to say Norm Greed. And and, yep. and, it, and it really is kind of a shame when you think about it that, you know, 
a deciding game of the Stanley Cup Finals, you couldn't watch it in your hometown without having to pay 12 bucks. <laughs> it was Sports Channel America showed it, right? But it was but they blacked it out here cuz like now you couldn't black that out here. But I think back then and, and that's the thing is John Ziegler, the guy before Bettman who was yep. president, not commissioner, in all his infinite wisdom cut a deal with Sports Channel America which nobody got. And right. I remember I remember I was a 20-year-old in Roseville in an apartment with my girlfriend and I had to subscribe to pay-per-view North Star games and and they put a Sports Channel America NHL playoff package together that you could all I was 20 years old I'm spending like 50 bucks for <laughs> hockey. What an idiot. Uh, well, I'm sure your girlfriend wasn't happy you weren't spending more money on her. <laughs> uh, I probably don't think I told her. That's fine now. We've been to, ma- married for like 30 right. years, well, so I guess everything it all out. worked out fine. Everything turned out well. It all yeah. worked out fine. Again, right. the book uh, by Kevin Allenspock, Mirage of Destiny. It's a great read. If, if you're a North Star fan, it's a must read. If you're not, you can learn a whole lot out February 20th. And uh, plug your events, too, because you've, you've got a bunch of stuff to commemorate the launch of the book. Yeah, uh, the Wild has been great. They've invited us over for uh, the Saturday's game against Buffalo. starts at 4 o'clock. They're going to have us in the concourse there showing, unveiling the book really for the first time, and then they're going to carry it in the hockey lodge, so it will be available there. Nice. Uh, the official launch party has been set for Tom Reed. Uh, that will be 4 to 7 on Tuesday night, the 20th. Um, and then there's actually going to be a launch party at the Blue Line up here in, in uh, Sartell on uh, the 27th from, from 4 to 7 as well. Uh, I'm sure there'll be other events. And, and the other thing I wanted to you know try to squeeze in here a little bit, too, yeah. before you're d- done, Judd, is, you know, the, the, the story of that year is the first half of the book. But the second half of the book, I mean, I, I was really influenced when I was growing up. One of the reasons I became a sports writer was Roger Kahn, who wrote Boys of Summer. I'm sure you're familiar with that. He covered the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 50s. 20 years later, he went back, tracked all these guys down, went to go visit Jackie Robinson and Duke Snyder and Carl Erskine and all these people and wrote about what their life was like after that. You know, And I think that's what I tried to do with the second half of the book. All of these guys, and I was amazed at how many of them have fantastic stories to tell. Some of them terrific. Some of them heartbreak. You know, But, I mean, everybody had – some really significant things to say. And as an athlete, you don't often hear about what happened ever after. I mean, you know, these guys stopped playing. And if you're not Mike Madonna, who's a Hall of Famer and still sort of in the spotlight, most of these guys, nobody knows what happened, you know. And they weren't making that much money back then. I mean, as we didn't no, make I- very much as interns. <laughs> I can't nope. believe you. I don't know if I got enough to pay for my gas to get out to Med Center. And oh, that. there's no but, way. You, you took but- a loss on that job, so did I. But, you know, a lot of guys, you know, they had to go on to second careers and many of them are still working, you know. So, uh, it, it, like I said, it's it's it kind of twofold. It's it's the story of that year, which was incredible. But then it's it's like, you know, what happens to you when you get that close to your goal, whether it's a Stanley Cup or whatever your goal in life is. And, you know, I, I feel kind of akin to this myself. I mean, you know, hey, I wanted to go on and cover the Yankees someday. I wanted to work for Newsday or the New York Times or whatever. Well, you know, that didn't happen. <laughs> okay. But I did the best that I could. I had a pretty decent career. Now that I look back on it, 
I can live with it. And I think that's sort of the message that I got from a lot of these guys that I talked with. Sure. Would they have liked to have Stanley Cup ring? Absolutely. But, you know, you kind of have to, you have to own where you're at. You have to own what happened and take some pride in the fact that you were there. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some value in that. Great stuff, man. Fantastic. Always fun to talk about the North stars who are, uh, more and more forgotten aside from the fact that I think the younger generation likes their colors. So that's good. When the wild wears them, we're all exactly. again. Exactly. Mirage of destiny. Kevin Allen Spock is the book. It's the story of the 1990, 91 North stars. Kevin, appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon on Judd's hockey show. Thanks Judd. I really appreciate this.